This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, happy Friday. I'm Cassie Half. I hope you've had a great week. It uh, might seem as though harvest is only just wrapped, but seeding is not that far away and that means checking gear is up to the job. That might be a little easier soon if efforts to expand the Motor Vehicle Service and Repair Information Steering Scheme to include agricultural machinery is achieved. Yeah, it's an issue of consumer sovereignty. It's also an issue of competition in the repair market. In the context of passenger motor vehicles, we had a problem where if data wasn't being shared, independent mechanics would basically go to the wall. Uh, they'd be able to wash the wheels, but they wouldn't be able to get under the hood. So uh, I'll have more on that. And could a government fund to foster new processing uh, infrastructure help with high farming input costs as well? I'll have more on that soon. But first up today, it seems a large number of farmers could get caught up in these proposed changes to the superannuation system. The federal government wants to double the tax on capital gains with people who have assets greater than $3 million in a super fund. Charlie Thomas from the National Farmers Federation explained to David Clawton how the proposals will work. A lot of Australians will hear $3 million in a super account and think that that is a very small percentage of the population, but it is actually a much higher percentage of the farming community. And the way it affects farmers is a couple of ways. So I guess firstly why farmers have these assets in their super fund in the first place. For a lot of farmers, their land asset is their superannuation, so they don't make superannuation contributions in the same way that paid employees like you and I might do. And so relying on that asset in their retirement is pretty typical for a lot of farming families. And they transfer it into superannuation because a lot of the time it's relating to succession planning arrangements. So they might put the the land assets into superannuation and then the next generation might pay a lease payment back to the farmer and that effectively becomes their retirement income. So what this additional tax is proposing is that if you've got assets exceeding $3 million in your superannuation, there'll now be an additional tax of 15% on any income on those assets exceeding $3 million. So the, the key concern that we have is around what's called unrealised gains and the fact that they're going to be taxed really for the first time. It's something that's quite unusual within our broader taxation system. And so if you've got a, a farm in your superannuation that's worth say $4 million, which isn't atypical for, for a lot of farms in this day and age. And then over the course of 12 months, that might see an increase of 8% up to, say, $4.3 million. So you're going to be taxed on that increase of $300,000 at 15% annually. And so... At 15 or 30%? Because they were increasing the, the tax, weren't they? Well, that's correct. So it's 15% now. They're going to add an additional 15% for for accounts over the $3 million mark. Yep. So so that new tax is 15%. So that could be, say, that $300,000 increase that I'm hypothetically talking about there, that could be an additional tax bill of around 50 grand. And if you think about the return on assets for a lot of farming businesses, it's often around 2%. So you might only be making $90,000 in terms of a return, you know, after all your costs. And then more than half of that could be consumed just by this new tax. So it is, you know... And that's every year, potentially, if property values continue to rise. Every year, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, we've all seen what's happened with valuations of rural properties. There has been a real surge in the market and it's become quite disconnected from what 
the, the assets are actually returning in terms of you know money back in the farmer's pocket. And what if so, the property value goes down the next year? Do they get the money back? Well, David, this is one of the many, many details that we're still yet to work through with government. And it's one of our primary frustrations that there hasn't been a proper consultation process to sit down with groups like ours and talk through this because that's exactly right. Do you get to accumulate those losses? Does it come off the tax bill in the following year? It's really not clear in anything that the government's put out so far. Could you see some farmers being forced to sell if they couldn't cough up, say, the 50 grand we were just speculating on? Well, that's right. Exactly. So the only option that you would have is if you haven't got available cash to meet that tax bill is to sell off those assets within the fund. So that's extremely concerning because, you know, this is such a significant number of family farming businesses who are in this category right now. We've got a lot, an ageing population among the farming community and a lot of people with current succession plans in place that involve these sort of arrangements. And these succession plans, they take, in many cases, you know, a decade to, to get into into place through the negotiation process and then actually setting things up and structuring things legally. And to unpick that, so this isn't meant to come into place until 2025, but that only leaves farming businesses with two years to unpick that if we're looking at this as a reality and having to potentially change up how things are structured. So there's a hundred and Thirty or 40,000 farmers in Australia, supposedly. But would, So would there be tens of thousands of people that might fall into this category? Very hard to get good data on that. We are trying to sort of work on some estimations based on feedback from local accountants and the like, but there is no publicly available data that allows us to examine exactly how many people would be affected. But anecdotally, just talking to our members, you know, everyone, if they don't have this arrangement in place, they certainly have a neighbour that does. And so, yeah, we would expect it to be a significant proportion of the of the farming community. So what are you hoping will happen next? Well, we're hoping that, you know, we may not be able to negotiate a complete reversal of the policy, but things like those unrealised gains, I think if we can stick to the principle that we only pay capital gains tax on assets when they're realised, that would be a big step forward. Things like indexation, if we could just get the, the cap to stay in line with market values for assets that people are going to be holding in their funds, those would be two important steps forward. But of course, you know, it still does come back to the fact that they're proposing to increase taxes on on superannuation and, and farmers' retirement savings. And that's something that I think even in itself needs some careful consideration of. And the reason for that is because farmers' assets that they hold in superannuation are never intended to be realised. They're intended, in most cases, to be passed on to the next generation. So it's not as though, you know, they've been saving for their retirement, have built up a balance of $3 million and then they're then going to draw down on that over the course of their retirement. The intention is not to draw down. The intention is to hand that asset on. And that's an important fundamental if we're to continue having a strong presence of family farming in this country. Charlie Thomas from the National Farmers Federation speaking to David Clawton. The policy needs to get through Parliament, obviously, but the Greens are arguing the starting point for the higher tax bracket should be set at 1.8 million, not 3 million, which would affect more farmers. So we'll keep across that. Now to uh, another issue that uh, farmers have been keen to see action on. Uh, the federal government is asking the Australian farming industry for ideas on how to best give farmers the right to repair the equipment they buy. In January, the Farm, American Farm Bureau signed an MOU with major farm machinery dealers to allow US farmers access to machinery repair codes, diagnostics and manuals after they were initially 
locked out by companies protecting intellectual property rights. Now, Assistant Treasurer Andrew Lee says they want to expand the motor vehicle service and repair information sharing scheme to include agricultural machinery. certainly interested in the potential for expanding the right to repair. Uh, For many years, I've been campaigning for data sharing for mechanics to be able to fix modern cars. Uh, Modern cars are computers on wheels, and unless independent mechanics had access to those data, they were looking at going to the wall. And the very same issue arises with agricultural machinery. Uh, The movements in the United States suggest a way in which this uh, might be possible to achieve, uh, and certainly it would improve agricultural productivity. Uh, because you're talking about farmers being able to fix their machines quicker uh, and at harvest time uh, you've got uh, dollars going out the door if you're not harvesting quickly. Do you like the idea of a, of an MOU type deal with manufacturers or are there other things the government can look at in this space? Uh, well, I'm open to how we do this, but I think it is important that we uh, look at the issue. Uh, the previous government implemented the uh, motor vehicle repair inf- share information sharing scheme, but didn't include our agricultural machinery. Why not? Uh, I think they wanted to uh, get get up a narrower scheme at the time, but I recognise that uh, the, uh, there's been a lot of engagement from uh, industry, from stakeholders, National Farmers Federation have been enthusiastic about this. Uh, I'm keen to see whether there's a, a path forward where we can work cooperatively with the manufacturers in order to make sure that uh, farmers are able to fix the machines that, after all, they've paid for. Is the issue here, what are you actually buying when you when you buy a vehicle from a manufacturer if you're not actually allowed to, to access any of the, the important uh, machinery behind operating the equipment uh, because of its intellectual property rights? Yeah, it's an issue of consumer sovereignty. It's also an issue of competition in the repair market. In the context of uh, passenger motor vehicles, we had a, a problem where if data wasn't being shared, independent mechanics would basically go to the wall. Uh, They'd be able to wash the wheels, but they wouldn't be able to get under the hood. Uh, And so with information sharing, we've ensured that uh, those independent mechanics are able to provide a bit of competitive pressure in the market, put downward pressure on the price of uh, repairs, uh, and ensure that people have uh, more choice. It's been important in regional areas because uh, people often would have to otherwise drive a long way to get to an authorised dealer. Instead, they can use an independent mechanic. And all those same principles flow through to farm machinery. Uh, It's often a uh, pretty long uh, distance to travel. Uh, And so if you've got to wait for an authorised repairer to come out, uh, that can be time and money that you're losing. So what happens from here in terms of of your point of view? What's the, the timeline for change here? Yeah, I'm keen to continue the conversations with stakeholders and with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, see whether or not they're able to uh, suggest a constructive way forward. Ideally, we'd do this on a collaborative basis, as has been done in the United States. Uh, in the area of passenger motor vehicles, it was ultimately necessary uh, to, uh, to come in with a government-imposed scheme. Uh, let's see whether we're able to get something, something voluntary up in the first instance. Assistant Treasurer Andrew Lee speaking with Warwick Long. Now, someone who knows the problems the ag sector faces when trying to fix machinery is Darren Downey from Orbost in Victoria. He's run an engineering company for the past 36 years. He's often called on to help farms repair equipment uh, along with earth moving and logging machines as well. And he told Annie Brown information from manufacturers needs to be made available to those who help repair machinery. 
the biggest problem that we've found is that not just in the agricultural sector but also in the earth moving sector we've found problems uh, getting uh, the information needed from the bigger earth moving and, and tractor companies uh, when there is an, um, a breakdown that a farmer has and quite often these companies tend to like to protect the, the information that they have um, that their technicians use um, but the biggest problem is that quite often farmers or you know if we've got to use a third party to to do a repair getting hold of these people is very difficult and to get someone on site immediately when you've got a, a machine breakdown is very difficult and the, and what we come up against is that you know when when we we're on the spot and able to help farmers or or earth moving people we just can't get the information from the company that we need to be able to make those repairs immediately quite often the other problem that we come up against is that at times we do get they'll send in their technician which you know isn't always immediate for remote rural areas it can be a you know a day or two days away which you not only have the downtime of the of the machine but quite often um, at times the the uh, technician that they'll send even though they've been tra- factory trained and with all the information, quite often they're younger people that are you know, less experienced in diagnosis. They've been taught, taught from the factory, but often they don't have the, the lateral ability to be able to diagnose uh, problems on the spot. That sounds incredibly frustrating, Darren. So you're based out in Orbost. So how long does it take you to get somebody out there to fix some of these machineries, the, some of these machines that you come up against? Well, look, sometimes... Uh, you know, look, you don't want to can these companies totally because, you know, often the nearest dealers do the best that they can. But often if um, if it's harvest time or if it's, uh, you know, busy times, you can't always get somebody straight away. So, you know, they, you might ring them and say, oh, and they might say that, well, you know, we can't send somebody out for a day or two days depending on their workload. Well, you know, you've got the people that have got machinery that's broken down, expensive machinery that they need to have working. Does it cost more as well to repair your machinery this way? Oh, definitely. Well, you know, often often these companies, they tend to be the top of the tree as, as far as you know, charging out and their charge-out rates for clients that they've got to come and service, which that in itself is pretty unfair. I mean, you know, the idea of having factory-based people like that is to keep their machinery going. You know, it shouldn't be to make money at all costs for the people that they sell the machinery to because they're not only making the, the, the coin when they're selling or, or leasing the machinery, they're making a damn side more money when they've got to send out somebody to try and diagnose a problem and fix a problem and then charge them exorbitant rates to be able to do that. What would you like to see happen in to change this current situation? The other side of this coin is that machinery, people that sell machinery um, look after the name of their machinery. So they don't want any Tom, Dick and Harry that can, with, in, that, with access to the, this information, to be able to fiddle around when they haven't got a lot of idea what they're doing. But I think that under the circumstances, that information, that the regulations or some regulation needs to be introduced so that there is mandatory access to that information after a machine is sold to the repair industry. Now, who you define as the repair industry, I don't really know because, you know, I I also understand that in remote rural properties, quite often the mechanics and their farmers, if they've grown up with the ability to be able to do that, well, those people need to have access to that information. In my opinion, all that information should be available pretty much to everyone. Some of the machinery that we've worked on, and and just one point comes into mind, we had a, uh, a paving machine that came over from Denmark. All right, this machine broke down here um, a couple of years ago, and we 
and we couldn't fix that machine immediately. We, the, the only way that we could go about it is that we had to actually get online, send an email to Denmark to, to be able to get the information to do it. Now, it took two days to do it, to be able to do that, to, to be able to troubleshoot a problem. Some of the other companies that we deal with will have that information actually online. You know, they want to have that information out there because the machinery that they supply, they want to have it going so they've got a good reputation and people will want to buy their machinery because they've got that immediate backup when it's needed. And to my mind, that is the best way to do business for those companies. That was... Uh... Darren Downey from Orbus speaking with Annie Brown. It's 21 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. We've got weather up next, but in the meantime, grant growers held a roundtable with the fertiliser industry and government to talk about reducing input costs for farmers and to make the fertiliser industry in Australia more self-sufficient. One idea is to use a government fund to foster new processing infrastructure. Shona Gavel, CEO of Grain Growers, told Michael Condon that rising costs have cut into what otherwise would have been three good years in some parts of the country. So Grain Growers just recently closed our annual policy survey and so did our our counterparts, Grain Producers Australia. And what's come through with that is that reducing costs and improving availability of farm inputs is the number one thing that growers um, are concerned about at the moment. Grain growers uh, pulled together a roundtable where we um, uh, were able to bring in and and have a really informed and open discussion with a great cross-section that included government, grower representatives, fertiliser and agricultural chemical representatives, insurance and seed sector participants. And you tried to get them to agree to maybe loosen the purse strings on a government fund? I think the issues are a little bit more complex than um, loosening the purse um, strings, but we did have the minister there. He's aware of the issues in this space at the moment, and it was just a a great opportunity to bring people together and have those open conversations about what can be done to drive change and find new solutions um, to this increasing impact to growers on farm inputs on the profitability and productivity there. But isn't it just a case of market forces and we've, we've, we've seen the prices fall and, you know, the Ukraine war pushed prices up. That caused, uh, you know, a, a massive hike in prices. Aren't we going to see the ebbs and flows of market forces? Do we really need processing here? I think when it comes to domestic manufacturing, there's lots of opportunities there uh, and and things that we can capitalise on, which is great for the entire grains industry. There's obviously considerations that come into it as well with domestic manufacturing, um, but it is something that we're looking at at the moment and we were pleased um, that the Minister uh, made the announcement yesterday that under consideration at the moment is uh, the National Reconstruction Fund as a potential avenue for developing investment in the space. Right, so that's the fund. That's a five hundred million dollars in that fund, and and but we have some raw materials here we could use. But I guess the the real question mark is over energy, and it'd have to be renewable energy. Yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of considerations with that. Um, energy is one of one of the big impacts. We we can't have domestic manufacturing without um, access and and availability in that energy space, and there were certainly a lot of discussions around that yesterday. And the fertilizer companies, uh, so they're open to the idea. They they think they. They could make a buck out of it. You know what? It was it was great to actually see um, the innovation and um, the openness that was there at the roundtable yesterday, and how people are looking at new technologies. Um, that was discussed in depth. We had some very interesting presentations there um, on. Ele- 
electrolysis technology and coated urea, we do need to look really closely at the available innovation and what it is and how we can capitalise on it. Okay, so uh, early days, but the signs are promising. Can I ask you about some seasonal conditions? We're hearing from some grain growers, uh, some beef producers as well, but also some grain growers, a little bit concerned about the latest bomb forecast that things are drying up a bit and set to stay dry for the next three months as we think about planting. Is that, are you hearing concerns from members? We are hearing concerns and, and that was one of the motivators for pulling together this roundtable. Uh, when, when we've got high cost of production and high input costs, it does make growers nervous about um, what their program for the year ahead looks like. Um, and we're, we're certainly keeping an eye on the weather and we're really hoping that um, it comes good and that there's rain where it's needed and rain when there's not, and there's not rain when it's not. Um, and we do need to see a bit more in that um, moisture profile. Because we heard a bit of a warning from ABES this week saying, you know, three good years in a row, which is generally what we've seen, that's probably, you know, it's unlikely to continue. It certainly is a concern for growers and and we've heard uh, people are a little nervous about the year ahead. I think it's a really important time when we think about those three bumper years we've had that we do consider um, just the innovation and expertise that our Australian growers have navigating through climate um, conditions and and the way that they produced um, three amazing years and, and what they've put in and sort of the risks and concerns that they've weathered along the way to get to that. CEO of Grain Growers, Shona Gavel, speaking with Michael Condon. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology and now to get a sense of what's coming up for the weekend and beyond weather-wise. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. It's uh, really settling into a, quite a calm autumnal sort of phase at the moment by the feel of things. It is. Um, certainly is, particularly over the south. It is going to warm up again uh, across the north, so we are looking at some very hot conditions from around mid next week but yeah it's still uh, remaining sort of mild to warm in the south at the moment we are going to see things um, just gradually warm up over most parts um, particularly today we've seen the winds go a bit more more northeasterly but over the weekend uh, winds start to swing back around to a bit of a southerly we do have a trough moving across the north but uh, yeah we will see conditions just cooling along the fringes of the coast but uh, yeah temperatures still remaining a bit warmer over inland parts and certainly as we uh, get into early next week they will continue to warm as well so not much happening other than that Uh, certainly not looking at too much rainfall around over the next week we did see a little bit around yesterday mainly about uh, southern coasts and ranges a little bit over the coast of uh, the west coast of Air Peninsula as well, but yeah, nothing really major as far as totals go, just generally less than a couple of millimetres, but certainly on the horizon, not much. Um, looking like we'll see a little bit develop over the lower southeast over the weekend, just as a, a weak front and upper low feature moves across that region and perhaps a little bit of a thunderstorm early Sunday morning um, through that region as well but uh, we'll keep an eye on that one so yeah Cassie it's um, looking pretty dry across most parts of the state and temperatures certainly starting to 
to pick up a little bit with those winds going round to the north. But uh, yeah, generally not a great deal happening uh, weather-wise. We do have uh, some coastal wind warnings about western coast, but uh, no other warnings expected, although we will probably see some elevated fire dangers as we head into that hot period um, middle towards the end of, of next week. But other than that, not a great deal happening across the state, Cassie. No, it's very much calmed down and, uh, yeah, feeling very autumnal at the moment, it, it seems. It is, yes. Um, you know, we are sort of looking like we're heading into a bit of a dry period. So, we're, yeah, we'll see what happens as we uh, get towards the end of next week because there is another frontal feature moving through. So, we'll wait and see what uh, happens in, in the longer term for, for uh, March. Well, seeding isn't too far away, I'm sure. Um, some rain would not go astray soon, so we'll uh, keep an eye on that. Thanks for that, Vince. Okay, no worries, Cassie. Vince Rowlands from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the Upper Western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. There is a slight chance of a shower in the northeast in the afternoon and evening. Basically zero chance of rain anywhere else. Could be a thunderstorm around though. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to between 15 and 19 with the daytime temperatures reaching 28 to 35 degrees, so quite warm. The Lower Western will be sunny and overnight the temperatures are going to fall to between 11 and 14 degrees, but the daytime temperatures again reaching the low to mid 30s. I've got more to come on the Country Alley. I'm Cassie Huff. It is approaching 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you can join me if you are just joining. I am Cassie Huff and uh, there are about 51 prescribed burns planned for South Australia this autumn. It's certainly feeling like autumn is upon us now. I've noticed a few of the trees starting to change colour and things like that. This year, the prescribed burns are going to be running more to seasonal weather patterns rather than set dates, which some say is a step in the right direction when merging traditional knowledge with government agencies. The fire will take off and if it's going slow, you look on the ground and you see all the little animals, like you'll see the little lizards, you'll see all the little cockroaches and they just all slowly walk away. So they're not getting burnt because everything's about balance. More on that soon. And there will be a memorial, uh, memorial and fundraiser tomorrow to uh, recognise the life of a uh, shearer, originally from France, who has been in South Australia shearing. So I'll have more on the efforts for his fundraiser this in the next half hour. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Evelyn Leckie. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Making news this hour, a court has heard that a South Australian man who admitted to killing his baby daughter by shaking her didn't admit to his crimes for months while she remained in hospital. Masling pleaded guilty in the South Australian Supreme Court to manslaughter last year. The court heard there was a phone call between Masling and his mother discussing how to get authorities off the scent of his crime. 
The Foreign Minister Penny Wong says South Australians won't be disappointed when an announcement is made about the nation's nuclear submarines. The Prime Minister is expected to join Australia's AUKUS allies, the UK and US, early next month to reveal the plan to acquire and build nuclear subs. And police in the northern German city of Hamburg say several people have been killed or wounded in a shooting inside a building used by Jehovah's Witnesses. The officers say when they arrived at the scene, they found people with gunshot wounds on the ground floor and then heard a shot from the upper floor and found a fatally wounded person there. Police say that person may have been the shooter and they're still working to verify no further perpetrators are involved. And more news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Evelyn Leckie there. Now, as I was saying, a total of 51 prescribed burns are planned in South Australia this autumn. Now, these burns, which are anticipated to start in the next fortnight, are particularly important in the lead, into the lead-up to the predicted El Nino conditions. The Department of Environment and Water says the autumn burn program will run to seasonal weather patterns rather than set dates, which some say is a step in the right direction in a way that it's merging traditional knowledge of country with government agencies. Suzanne Thompson, Managing Director of Yumbaka Aboriginal Cultural and Heritage and Tourism Development Aboriginal Corporation, says the gap between cultural burning and backburning comes from the dispossession of country, but that gap is slowly closing. So when we're taken off country and we're not allowed to be our cultural uh, land practitioners anymore and managing country the way we did, and I think there was that gap because then there was a whole transfer of participation and ownership of country and so you know very much that western knowledge come from the old way so springtime comes let's do a burn so there was a set calendar to do burns and stuff but traditionally for us as soon as we get 40 30 to 40 mil of rain doesn't matter what time of the year we burn so that's what we look at then and why then there is this gap because and I think now it's starting to close We've got Fire Stick Alliance. You know, I think also the gap is, is that there's a fear. Miss Thompson says their spiritual connection to country allows them to have confidence in knowing what will come back after cultural burns. They run workshops with the fire emergency services on country to pass on this knowledge. She shares a story on one of the first workshops they did together. For them, firstly, they arrived. We had 30 mil of rain the night before, so it was like the ancestors knew our workshop was happening because I kept thinking, oh, we need rain. And of course, that night before, that rain, thank you, I said, old people. And so they all, of course, they woke up, oh, is it, it cancelled now, rain? We said, no, it's perfect. What? They said. And then they're looking around for our fire truck and they were looking around for all sorts of other things, our drip torches and everything. We said, no, none of that. You're lighter and just you need you just the water for you to drink. What? Yeah, yeah, it's all good. So we went out. For them, it was the first time they said that they'd ever had a spiritual connection to fire. They said they were always responding to fire in such a hostile way with backburning you know, and it's just, it's imploding in their space and it's just like so hot and annihilating everything. Whereas for them, when they first, they seen it, they went, oh wow. And the fact that we were walking right behind the fire and just slowly walk, and it, it would, and it, it's, it's, it's actually quite beautiful to watch because the fire will take off and if it's going slow, you look on the ground and you see all the little animals, like you'll see the little lizards, you'll see all the little cockroaches, all, and they just all slowly walk away. So they're not getting burnt. Everything's about balance. Miss Thompson then shares how she would like to see the merging of Indigenous Australians and government agencies continue in the future. I think with coal burning, giving us the opportunity to, I think, reset, 
country, but the burning traditional burning practice. I'm coming back to when you're talking about that healing. It is a healing process because we're actually nurturing country up to provide more food and to give us a cycle. But then we're saying to that bit of country, but we're not going to come back to you for a while because we're going to let you just do what you do. And that's the mosaic. Well, that's we're going over here now and just having that understanding of country. Suzanne Thompson, Managing Director of Yambaka Aboriginal Cultural Heritage and Tourism Development Aboriginal Corporation. Regional Fire Management Officer for York and Mid-North, Ken Anderson, says there's great significance in working together to manage country. We're involving First Nations people with our co-management boards and they're part of our burns in relation to you know where we do them and they're becoming involved in capturing some of their past knowledge about fire and fire management within their culture. And how important is it to have the perspective of First Nation groups included? Yeah, it's very, very important. I mean, their knowledge in some respects has been uh, diminished over the last couple of hundred years and they're regaining that knowledge and we work with communities to enable them to do so. And how does that prescribed burning differ to cultural burning? The First Nations people um, undertake cultural burning for their purposes within their culture. It can be similar and they can use it for uh, uh, similar reasons. Ours is a rather large-scale burning program which reduces an overall risk and that's to, uh, to people and assets. Regional Fire Management Officer for York and Mid-North, Ken Anderson, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris with the help of Christian Kominos. And in South Australia, prescribed burns are a shared responsibility between the country fire service government agencies that manage land and councils and private landholders. And for more information on prescribed burns, you can head to the DEW, the CFS or the NPSW websites. We'll move to fisheries now. Australian farmers have produced their most valuable yet growing $90 billion worth of food and fibre, according to the Australian Bureau of Agriculture and Research Economics. However, some in the fishery sector say that figure could have been higher and they're calling for a change to the data collection methods to fully grasp the growth of Australia's aquaculture industry. Managing Director of Fisheries Research and Development Corporation, Patrick Hone, told Alice Marshall where the discrepancies in the ABES report lies. So currently the commercial value, according to ABES, is around about $3.55 billion. Unfortunately, the, behind every number, there is a lot of missing numbers. And I think the thing that we note today is that there's a lot of industries that aren't counted in that statistic, uh, particularly the seaweed, emerging industries, the vertically integrated industries. So we don't see, like in uh, grapes, the wine value, if that makes sense. So we don't see the vertically integrated value. Um, if we look to the future, so the number right now and what it could be next year and the year after, just in the Atlantic salmon industry alone, we know by the number of fingerlings in the hatcheries right now that we're expecting 15% growth in the next 18 months. And yet the data today was saying it's going to flatline. Nevertheless, if we look across all the sectors, prawn farming, barra farming, Murray cod farming, seaweed farming, if you look at the current investment and you realise that as a gross value of production in the next one, two, five and ten years, every one of those sectors is growing at 10 plus. Some of those sectors are growing at 50% plus and some are growing at 100%. 
Now, when you're on a low base, for example, Murray Cod, you're relatively low. You can grow at quite high percentages, that makes sense. Uh, and some sectors which are more mature, like salmon, which are already billion-dollar industries, are only growing at 12%. I'd love to get 12% on my money. Yeah, 12% the, is still quite a lot. 12% is still amazing growth. Um, so that's fish farming. Wild catch sector is still growing. It's often not talked about. And the opportunity to grow wild catch and integrate it with our uh, recreational value, which is roughly about $11 billion. But the wild catch sector is still a really, really important part. And so we've spoken about the growth that we can see is going to happen over the next couple of years in fisheries. Can we see that same, like, have we got figures when it comes to the growth in the aquaculture industry? Because ABES has nothing on aquaculture at this stage. Like a lot of... um new industries, I think governments take a while to catch up. So to be fair to government, they work on, let's say, uh, you know, traditional data sets. They have a whole lot of codes that they love to code things by. There isn't even a code for a seaweed farmer. So they go under a thing called hunting and fishing. Bizarre. So how do we actually get codes so we can actually start measuring their employment, their value, And to do that, we're going to have to have changes in how we run the digital world. The digital world at the moment is still running on an analogue system. It's still the old paper system, and they just write it down in a digital spreadsheet. It doesn't work. So we're going to have to recode our digital landscape so that we can start capturing these new and emerging industries. Why is it important? Because if we don't capture their value in jobs in regional Australia... People who are in policy making will make poor decisions about people's future life. And so without good data, how can people make good decisions? It could be healthcare, schooling, it could, could be roads, infrastructure, freezers, electricity, whatever it is. Without good data to inform people what's happening in regional Australia with these new industries, we won't make good decisions. Patrick Cohen, the Managing Director of the FRDC. Seafood Industry Australia's Aquaculture Policy and Project Officer Julie Petty says the industry is undergoing a period of rapid growth at the moment and looking to double their production value by 2030. Uh, According to ABS statistics, industry is currently sitting around $3 billion in production value. Our target is to double that by 2030. And how do you plan on doing that? So there's a few things, I guess, at foot. One is we're seeing uh, a large increase in volume volume within the aquaculture sector. It's recently taken over wild caught as the most, um, the higher value portion of the industry. I think currently sitting around 52%. It might have just increased a little bit more recently. So we're seeing um, a high increase in the number of um, applications for licences, permits, that sort of stuff, to go out um, and start in the aquaculture sector and across, in across a variety of industries. So those industries might be whether it's seaweed like asparagopsis or algae, those kind of industries? Are they the main ones? Yes, we're seeing, um, according to some of the, I guess, my contacts that I'm talking to, we're seeing a large increase in the number of applications around seaweed licences. That might include algae as well. We're seeing a diversification too of existing aquaculture producers who might be producing, say, salmon, tuna or kingfish, diversifying their businesses into algae and seaweed production as well. There's a lot going on. Julie Petty, Aquaculture Policy and Project Officer with Seafood Industry Australia, speaking with Alice Marshall. It is 17 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill.
move over, Hass, and get out of here, Shepherd. There are some new kids on the block when it comes to avocados. Now, if you're a fan of avocados, and there's a good chance you are because the, the, the products and the uh, things you can eat uh, uh, at your um, supermarkets and your, your cafes and restaurants has really exploded. And there are three new avocado varieties that have landed on Australian shores in a bid to provide more options for consumers. Lisa Cooper has this report. Australia's largest grower of Kensington Pride mangoes, Manbalu, has just signed the rights to three new avocado varieties that have come from New Zealand through its sister business, Manbalu Fruit Company. Marie Picconi, owner and managing director of Manbalu Fruit Company, says it's time to provide choice to consumers. It was a niche product in the early 1990s. And then there's been the huge proliferation of Haas all over the world with a few other minor varieties. Um, And if you look at other industries like the potato industry, tomatoes, apples, uh, there's never been, even mangoes, there's not always a reliance on just one or two varieties, one major dominating variety. And we've identified that there is room for other varieties in the avocado industry. So rather than stick with um, planting even more Hass when there's some situations where you know there's just too many Hass around, um, we wanted to offer customers and consumers um, a new experience. With the material now in Australia... Marie wants to plant out commercially on a pilot basis to assess the three different varieties in Australian conditions. The variety has never been commercially successful in Australia before. These varieties are very exciting because they're all the progeny of Sharwell. And Sharwell is a variety that was um, found and it was found in Australia in about the 60s or 70s. It's an absolutely amazing tasting variety, but it never... It never um, expanded hugely commercially because it was it's what we call a B-type flower and a B-type variety, which means that the flowering and the fruit set is temperature sensitive. These three new varieties, um, from all of our observation, appear to be A-type flowers, which means they're not temperature sensitive. So they've got all those beautiful charwool eating characteristics um, and it looks as though they've got, you know, really good yield characteristics, but they haven't got that setback of being very sensitive to low temperatures, especially um, during flowering. Hass is Australia's most popular avocado variety. So are we really ready to try something new? We do believe that consumers, the research shows that, yeah, sure, lots of people like Hass, but they are also quite, um, they're quite available to taste new flavours in avocados and these varieties have got a beautiful nutty buttery flavour. People don't always stick to exactly what they've always had. They look forward to something that's new. I mean that's that's a consumer trend. Let's go to the experts in the avocado space. The cafe owners who whip up fresh avocado toast for the latte sippers every single day. So our most popular food menu item would be definitely the avocado smash on sourdough. I think they just love it. It's um, it's a really healthy option, and we serve it with just a, re- a wedge of lemon, you know. So it's not overcomplicated with cheeses or anything. It's it is what it is. It's all about the fruit. There's some days I sell out because uh, families are also getting it for their children as a healthy option instead of a ham and cheese toasty. The children are wanting sourd- you know, the smashed avocado and sourdough. That's Kelly Behrens. She owns the Tobruk kiosk at the Strand in Townsville. Her avo of choice is Hass, thanks to its creaminess and consistency, 
but she says she isn't stuck in her ways. Well, we're open to try anything. Like, if it's obviously going to be of the same quality and it's in season when the others aren't, we will definitely try it. Yeah. Kelly Behrens, a Townsville cafe owner, ending that report from Lucy Cooper. There are a lot of avocados grown in that part of the world. Now, I must admit, I am a little bit stuck in my ways when it comes to avocados. I do like a Hass uh, avocado, and I have never really been able to get behind the shepherd avocados. But uh, it is a shame because they're actually the ones that are more on the shelves at the moment. I do enjoy some avocados. So are you quite open to trying new varieties of avocados, or are you perhaps a bit set on one variety that you like? I'd be interested to know. Text me, 046. Seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Now, uh, in uh, some sad news, Shearers will be gathering tomorrow at Lindell Park outside Kingston to remember and raise money for Tommy Vow, who died in a car accident last month. Tommy was originally from France. He moved to the region about six years ago and started working in shearing sheds, originally as a wool presser before working his way up to becoming a qualified shearer. Now, 1,000 lambs will be available to shear at the fundraiser, with all proceeds raised going to Tommy's partner and family. Farmer Cameron England will be supplying the lambs in the use of his shearing shed and he says the day will be about coming together to remember and celebrate Tommy's contribution to the industry. Yeah, obviously it's a a sad event, you know, one that none none of us want to really be involved with, but um, the you know, tragedies happen, and then as a result, the community, you know, like your shearing fraternity community, uh, along with farmers, are really getting behind um, Tommy and his family and support network to, um, you know, provide some funds to uh, make sure that his life's celebrated. And, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's obviously a sad day. Our, the shearing contractor who Tommy was working for uh, rang me and asked, you know, if, if we'd mind putting on a day where, so they're going to shear a 1,000 lambs and the money that we would normally pay to the contractor, basically that, that those thousand sheep, whatever what it would cost to shear them, that money's going to be passed on to Tommy and his family, um, like I said, and the support network to make sure that the right thing happens by him. Uh, and we're only too happy to provide the sheep and, and, the, and the location to, to make sure that that happens. And how did you get to know Tommy? Yeah, Tommy started working here, it would have been five or six years ago now, I reckon he started off as the wool presser. He excelled at whatever he did, he was he was a rare, rare find and, and it's really sad for the industry. You know, he, he epitomises the, the real work ethic. You know, this is a guy that you could put on any job, be it the best job, the worst job, and, and he'd put his head down and get that job done. So he started here wool pressing a number of years ago now, and he, he's probably the best presser that I've had. Uh, yeah, he could easily be the best presser we've ever had, uh, and and this is a, and he was a rookie sort of at the time. And he's then progressed to crutching in our shed for a number of years as well, and then, and then he's been... You know, put his head down and learnt how to shear, uh, and he and he was he was going to be a very good shearer. He was clean. He was doing it the right way, learning learning the the style and the skill the right way, rather than trying to push numbers to necessarily make the most money he could. So, yeah, it's really a really a real shame because he's one of those people that you just want working for you in whatever he did. He put his head down and get it done. The the shearing industry and the farming industry will will miss people like him. You know, it's hard to find those really good workers that'll, that will just do whatever job. And, you know, they've been busting to try and get visas to continue to be here in Australia doing doing a job that, that, we're, that we're finding it hard to find people to fill. So he just epitomised what, what every young shearer should really be trying to do. So it, it's, it's very sad. It's a big loss. 
and was he well liked with the the team here and the rest of the community? Yeah, absolutely. Like if if you see what's going to happen here on Saturday, it's a it's a real indication of the impact that he had on other people. He, he was a quiet individual, but he was fun. You know, you could have a joke with him. You know, about the French football or whatever. You could you could you know make a make a few jokes, talk a bit of French with him or whatever. He, he was just a really likable guy. You know, fit individual. Yeah, he just loved to work and and you know then enjoy himself. Yeah, just a, just a really likable person. And cheering shed and on farms. Do you become quite close with the people you work with in general? Yeah, definitely. Certainly, some in particular. Like you know, these guys are providing a service for me, and like in any community or job or whatever, you're going to have connections, different connections, I should say, with with different people. And and Tommy was one of those guys who you know I wasn't having a drink with him away from work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you know, you you consider him a mate. You love seeing him when he, when you got here and and having a chat to him in, in the breaks or whatever. And yeah, so. You know that it's quite sad. I think. I mean, you know, the the first day that I walked back into the shed after the accident had happened, it, you know, I got quite emotional about it. So, you know, we'll miss him here. So. And as far as Saturday goes, what kind of turnout are you you hoping for? What can do you hope the day will achieve? Look, I I, I don't know what the what's going to come. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of people here. I believe I couldn't give you a number or anything like that. But as I said, mentioned before, we're providing a thousand lambs to shear, um, and though you know, there's all sorts of shear that may not have even really worked with Tommy. They're all sort of coming and um, shearers from other teams and that just shows, you know, how they support each other, and, you know, and one of their own who was who was obviously clearly liked within that profession. So there'll be a lot of people. There'll be, you know, they'll, they'll probably have a few laughs, I'd like to think, and, you know, that it won't be all sad. And remember Tommy for what he was because that's what, that's what he deserves. Yeah, sad news, but it sounds like uh, the fundraiser will, will go a long way to helping out to Tommy's partner and, and family. That was Farmer Cameron England speaking with Elsie Adamo. Now, I've had a, a text in from Marty saying um, regarding the avocados, the new avocado varieties. So I was asking whether you are really stuck on your house avocados or whether you don't mind a shepherd or perhaps maybe you'll try these new varieties. Marty says, uh, I like shepherds because they are a little more hardy. They don't bruise as easily as has uh, that is true I must admit I still still like them more but uh, they are firmer and uh, probably do handle a bit more of uh, I don't know being dropped or banged around from time to time if you've got thoughts on avocados and which ones you prefer text me 0467922891 or phone 1300222891 now finally today uh, you might have heard the New South Wales government purchased the largest ever piece of land to be converted into a national park in the state's history. Thurlow Downs between Tipperborough and Wenaring was bought for an undisclosed amount and it will be the state's third largest behind Kosciuszko and Wollamai. Atticus Fleming is the Deputy Secretary of the National Parks and Wildlife Service in New South Wales and he spoke with Oliver Brown about the acquisition. By New South Wales standards, that is a a large acquisition for the National Park Estate. So that's exciting, but what is far more important is um, not the number of the hectares, if you like, but the quality of the hectares. Like This is a really, uh, this is a stunning property. It, it has a lot of threatened species. It has wetlands that are of international significance. It has habitats that aren't on any other national park. You know, important Aboriginal cultural heritage. I mean, this is just a, a stunning, really exciting uh, addition to the park estate and one that 
I think is going to bring a lot of people out into that part of the um, uh, into, into that part of the state to explore. Yeah, and some of those species and uh, plants that you were referring to there. Do you have any examples of ones uh, just to put it out there? I love um, birds, so it's exciting for anyone who's interested in their birds because you've got a lot of threatened species, things like grey grass winds that are really only found in that part of the state, through to things like black falcons, plains wanderers. Really, though, a lot of different parrots, a lot of different honey eaters, crimson chats um, everywhere. So the bird life is spectacular. Um, you know, there's two threatened geckos that are living around the house, which you know just highlights again how significant it is. And then on the mammal side of things, you know, the mammals are much harder to see, but there'll be threatened hopping mice and then little threatened marsupial carnivores, things like coltars uh, and dunnarts. So, you know, it, it really has everything, this place. Mm, and, uh, yeah, I believe you sort of alluded to it there, but the minister said to us last week that there's um, uh, so, some wetlands on there that would be considered of global significance. Yeah, so the, the, the Bulu River is one of the last free-flowing rivers in Australia. And, I mean, wetlands generally across the world are probably the habitat that is the most degraded, you know, that is the, that has declined the most. So at the end of the Bulu, you get the Bulu overflow. And uh, this property contains a very large section of the Bulu overflow. And it's, you know, I'm lucky enough to have been on the ground there when there was quite a lot of water around. And it's just this stunning array of, of wetlands, sand dunes, water between the dunes. It's, it's an incredible pattern to see from the air. But then when you get down on the ground, you can really see how it, how that water adds so much life to the country there. And, the, you know, in a good year with a lot of rain, you'll have 100,000 water birds, which is incredible for that part of the country. Now, one of the adjacent parks is the Nariara Park, which was only taken on a couple of years ago itself. Um, how exactly is, are these two parks going to work in with each other? They both contain areas of the blue overflow, this important wetland, so it is probably important to, to be able to consolidate the two. But I think if you, again, take a step back and think, um, if you're coming out of Burke, you can head up to Thurloo Downs, you can move on to... Uh, Nariara to Sturt, down to Avenal, to Metford, Langadoon, uh, maybe to Mungo. What we're building here is a network of reserves that all fill some gaps in the park estate, all protect important habitat and threatened species, but also provide a great visitor experience. And for national parks across the state, it's $18 billion in economic activity every year, 74,000 jobs that we're supporting, most of that through visitation. And what we're doing is building up that, building those visitor experiences in the West and the Far West so we can drag more people out there, let them explore and discover the Far West and provide that real benefit to local economies. So it'll be five extra staff at Thurloo. I can't remember exactly. I think it was about four extra staff that went in around Nariara, you know, extra staff around Avenel, extra staff around Metford Langadoon. So... We're really building up the capacity out there, employing people. That's great for local economies. But more importantly, we're going to be dragging a lot of tourists out of Sydney and other places out to the far west. 
Atticus Fleming, the Deputy Secretary for the National Parks and Wildlife Service in New South Wales, speaking with Oliver Brown there. It certainly does sound like a great opportunity, but I do have a text saying from a person who worked on Thurlow that now it's going to be a haven for pests. It does take a lot of work to keep uh, pests down on those massive places. Hopefully they are able to. That's all we have time for in the program today. But if you'd like to find out more on what's happening in agriculture over the weekend, maybe you'd like to have a bit of a read. You can watch Landline, obviously, at 12.30 on Sunday but you can also go online to abc.net.au slash rural. There we've got lots of stories about some of the big news from the week when it comes to agriculture as well as some great feature stories as well. So do check that out. If you want to catch up on the Country Hour as well, just go to where you find your podcasts as well because uh, we podcast every day. That's all I have time for, though. Keep listening to ABC Local Radio. Sonia Feldhoff up next right now. It's coming up to 1 o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.